continuing today in our series in the book of Judges. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that most people in the room have never heard a sermon on Jephthah. Now, uh, some of you have, for sure. Uh, I, know, I know that some of you have, and, and most people in the room haven't heard many, many sermons out of the book of Judges, period. Um, but I, I'm guessing that most of you haven't heard a sermon on Jephthah. I bet you've read about it in your Bible reading plan, and you've scratched your head and went, what? Uh, because that's actually a decent response. Um, and here, here's the reason, I think, that you haven't heard uh, a sermon on Jephthah, most likely. It's because most pastors, uh, and I'm not being critical here, they, just, they, they, they choose the book of Hebrews method of, of this. And the book of Hebrews method is this. Um, Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. And they move on. And uh, there's, there's some, there's, there's like, I think there's some wisdom there. I kind of like read that and go, hey, why didn't I do that? Uh, but I really do believe uh, that what we're going to read today is true. I mean, there's a reason that these men are listed in the book of Hebrews in all seriousness. I mean, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, of David and Samuel of the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Jephthah checks a bunch of those boxes. And so we have to read that as we look at the author of Hebrews, and we have to go look back in the Old Testament and say, Jephthah did some of these acts, though not perfectly, in faith. Last week, Buddy covered chapters 6, 7, and 8. Um, you're welcome that he did it. He did it in 47 minutes. If I had to do it, we'd still be here. Um, he just talks way faster than I do. And so um, I listened to that sermon yesterday. I finally got a chance, and I would say, like, it was enjoyable. It really was. It was enjoyable. So good job on that. In the book of Judges, here's what you're going to get. Um, in the book of Judges, there are two intros, and there are two conclusions. And in the middle, you essentially have stories of 12 judges and one anti-judge. There's six major judges and six minor judges. Um, chapter nine, 9, which was right before, I'm going to skip 9, okay? I'm going to skip a chapter, um, is uh, Abimelech. And he was literally a tyrant, a, a terrorist. Um, he, he basically went to him and was like, hey, would you rather be judged by like 70 men or one man? Would you rather be oppressed by 70 kings or one king? And so he ki literally, he kills his brothers and then he just goes on a tirade and he oppresses Israel. And man, you see there's one, there's one scene where he's got all these people kind of cooped up in a tower. He sets the tower on fire and they all die. How he dies, though, is pretty interesting because um, this, this woman isn't considered a judge, but in a lot of ways, she was like a judge in Scripture, and he's the anti-judge. He's, again, going to set this city on fire, and this woman drops a millstone out of a window, and it lands on him, and it's going to kill him, and he knows he's, he's not dead, but he realizes he's going to die. He's crushed, and so he looks to his servant and says, hey, before I'm killed by this woman, stick your sword into me, and she does. 
And that's where chapter 9 is. And so there, there's where we are. Then there's this brief uh, mention of two of the minor judges, Tol and Jer. Um, they're two, the two of them, there's not much said about them that they combined and judged Israel for about 50 years. And then you get to the story of Jephthah, which gets considerable time. When I say major and minor, by the way, that's, that's very much like when we talk about major and minor prophets. Um, it's not necessarily in what they did or length of their rule. Um, it's just the amount of space they take up in the Bible, the amount that, uh, that's given to them. So we don't, we don't look at, like, you know, like at a, a Zechariah and say he's a minor prophet, he wasn't that important. And no, that's not it at all. It's that you know, he doesn't have the, there's not the same word count as Jeremiah. There's not the same amount of time given to him as Isaiah. Right, so uh, th- this is by word count, and so he only he actually only judges Israel for six years, so it's actually shorter than both Tol and Jar. But the story is pretty interesting, so let's dive in. We're gonna be starting in chapter ten, verse six. In chapter ten, verse six, we're gonna see the cycle that we've talked about in Israel, that the, the cycle of Israel struggles with God, and so. Uh, Verse 6, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and in the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. Now notice that word distressed again. We've we've seen that word multiple times. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods." Therefore, I will save you no more. Listen, this is, this, is, this is like very much like what we would like to do as parents often. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient. Over the misery of Israel. Here's my first big idea. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's actually Psalm 103.8. That's what we read uh, in our scripture reading this morning. So you're saying for, for, from here, you're, you're giving me this big idea I'm sorry, but I think I actually skipped my big truth. Did I skip my big truth? I want to bounce back up to my big truth. I'm sorry I did that. Here's the big truth. God is faithful to save his people even when they are not faithful. God is faithful to save his people even when they are not faithful. 
And I would tell you that that big truth is a big truth that you could definitely um, see in multiple passages in the book of Judges. But I'm, I'm using it here because I think we distinctly see that, again, in their cycle of sin, that they were not faithful, that they um, were, were crushed, right? They were, they were crushed by the oppression of, of others because they forsook the Lord and they did not serve him. So we see the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. We see that they were sold in the hands of their, their enemies. We see that God is, is just in this passage, but we also, I believe, we see is merciful and he's gracious and he's compassionate. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. Listen, he became impatient over the misery of Israel, it says. And so when you, you look, at, look at verse 16, so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he be, began, became impatient over their misery. They were suffering. They were suffering under a, a, oppression, and he be, became impatient with those who impressed. He became impatient with those who were making them miserable. And so, yes, God is just, and yes, he is, is, is loving, but, and he called his people to repentance, and they did. And even though they, re, they repented, they were having to deal with the consequences of their sin until God, because he is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love, now begins to remove the misery from them. You know, one of the things that we just have to deal with in life is that we are sinners. And we often fall to sinful, sinful temptations. We fall to the schemes of the devil and we sin. Uh, we, we do things. We, we, for, we forsake the Lord and we worship the idols, the false gods of other man, men and we, we run to them. We think about the New Testament. First John chapter 1 comes to mind. and this, this is verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, here's, where, here's what I want you to remember. I want you to tie this back. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So here we see Israel who struggled with God and who's for, for, forsaken God and has worshipped these false gods that God is in his graciousness and in his mercy, he's going to relieve them. Even though they've done exactly what he's told them not to, exactly what he's warned them against, he's going to relieve them. This is the good news for us, is that it's true for us too. It's true for us, rather, though, not through a judge 
He's not going to deliver us and give us this, this moment of ease from a judge, but he gives, us, he gives us redemption through his son, Jesus, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That the Lord was merciful and gracious to us in sending Jesus, that if we confess our sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, that he's just in doing it, that he's right in doing it, He's abounding in steadfast love. And so that is good news, my friends. That's the good news that we should see over and over and over when we look to the Old Testament and we see Israel and their sin cycles, that we should look up and see who God is. Verse 17. Then the Ammonites were called to the arms and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said one to another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So they were looking for a man. They needed a leader. They didn't have a leader. Remember, this is, this is the period between uh, Moses and Joshua and having physical leaders where they, they have no king but God. They have no physical leader between Joshua and Saul, the first king. Now, Jep Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And so, Gilead was his father. He, he had a mother that was a prostitute, but his father's wife also had sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time... The Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have, come to me, why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and bear our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Now here's my next big idea. The man that the people rejected was the very one that they needed to lead them. All right, so because of who his mother was, and because his brothers... Um, did not want him to lead over them. They ran him out. Now, th is this a familiar story in the Bible? We've heard this before. If you go backwards uh, and, and you think about Israel, 
and his son. You think about Joseph. And now, while his mother wasn't a prostitute, nonetheless, his brother still sold him off. And was he not the one that they ran off and rejected that was the very one that they needed to lead him? So, so we see that again. We also can think of Moses. And while the situation was different and he, was, he had to be orphaned by his mom because of the decrees of the king, we still see him go off. And we see him live a life that isn't like the people who are there and him need to come back and be the one to lead. And so we see this theme in the Bible that the, that the very people, the very man that's rejected is the very one that they need to leave him. He, he was an outcast. I mean, it, you know, I read several things this week and somebody basically said like, he was a mob boss. I, I thought about that for a second and I was like, a mob boss? That just doesn't, a gang leader, it just doesn't seem right because he's like out in the wilderness and like, I think, I think kind of back to like Appalachia, where I'm, where I'm from, and I think of like the guy up the holler who's got all the other guys in the network in the holler that run moonshine together, and that's the guy you don't mess with, right? That's the guy that's like, no, he's corrupt, he's crooked, he's rough, you don't want to fight that guy, right? You, 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 you don't mess with the guy. That's, that's kind of who I'm thinking about. He was an outcast. He spent time in, in the wilderness leading a, a band of criminals, misfits, and, and crooks, and he eventually would go and do great things for the Lord. I think we have to look here and see that Jesus was also an outcast, who the, the religious people of his day obviously kept pushing him out, and he would go spend time in the wilderness, and he led a band of misfits. And the very, the very leader that we needed, we rejected. And so I think this for us points a picture and shows us that we need Christ. Now, I just want to show you this. We often choose our leaders in a worldly fashion. We, we, think, of like, we think of our leaders and we look at them by... Not what the Lord wants, not what the, who the Lord would have us to lead us. And I, when I say we, I'm talking about the church um, rather than the qualifications of the Lord, what the Lord would say. They needed a warrior. God prepared before them a warrior. In the New Testament, who do we need to lead the church but elders and deacons? And in the, in the, in the New Testament, uh, we're given, we're given a, a qualifications, we're given lists, and this is what our elders and deacons should look like. But I would tell you that, that in most churches that have our uh, model of, of leadership, they're congregational churches, okay? So the church votes within itself who's going to be its leader. In most churches in America, they end up being deacon-led, not elder-led. And so deacons lead churches, not elders lead the churches. And so maybe this is unfamiliar to you because you've not been a part of a church like that, but this, this is true. All right, I, would, I, would, I would tell you that by percentage, there are more church who are the pastor and the search committee. All that stuff is put together by a deacon body. The deacons don't do what's prescribed for them in Scripture. They do more of the job of the elder, and they bring in a pastor to preach, and their hands are tied. Well, how they choose who they lead them often is this. Well, that's John. 
And John, he runs a really successful business, and he knows how to deal shrewdly with people. And, man, if you just, like, look at his wife and his, and his kids and his business, it's successful. And so he ought, to be a, he ought to be a deacon in the church, and he ought to help be the, one of the people who make decisions. We can trust his leadership. The truth is, John is wise. The truth is, John might not be godly. And so rather than looking at the, the godly qualifications that are given in Scripture for who ought to lead a church, they look at worldly means. And I would tell you that this, this is not a new problem, but we see here it is an old problem. And so they went until uh, times got it real and they needed a real leader. And in that moment, the Lord in his doing brings Jephthah. And I'm going to show you that. Um, then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you've come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Now, what we're going to get in these next several verses is we're going to see that, that Jephthah is actually a really skilled negotiator. And that, that in, in kind of his own power and what he, what he did, he was kind of crafty and schemy and like could scheme and negotiated uh, really well. Skip down to verse 23. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before the, the people of Israel. And he's telling the story of how they got the land. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? So he kind of says, like, if your God gave you this, wouldn't you take it? And wouldn't you rightfully say that it's yours? And so his point is, and the Lord, our God, has this possessed before us, so we'll possess it. He ran, he ran these people out of this land, so he gave it to us, and we possess it, so we're going to keep it. And you should be okay with it. Are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Aror and its villages and all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not de deliver them within that time? And so he's, he's showing, like, we've been here, we've been doing this thing, and you didn't do anything here, and you didn't do anything here. He's negotiating. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decided this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. And so you see this really brilliant um, back and forth that Jephthah does that just shows you he's a very skilled negotiator. That he's a, he's a, he's a businessman of sorts. And it doesn't work. After the skilled negotiation, he's like, nah. Going to kick you out anyway. Ain't going to work. And so here's the next big idea. Don't rely on your giftedness. Rely on God's power. And so here's where Israel has messed up over and over and over since the book of Joshua. In the book of Joshua, 
It was the Lord who went before them and the Lord who fought for them. There was this dependence on the Lord that we can just march around Jericho seven times and the Lord will bring, you know, the Lord's going to bring the walls down. Like we, we see the battles in Joshua and we see God move in these mighty ways and throw these giant hailstones down on people and, and crush them, right? There was this dependence that the Lord was going to move and now we see this dependence on schemes and on negotiation and on battle strategy. And when all that happens, remember? Like, when it happens, in their own power, it fails. We say in our church all the time, if not in the power of the Holy Spirit, then in the power of who? Because it's a reminder that we don't need to work in our own power, that yet we need to work in God's power. I made, I made a comment this morning to Jennifer, and she just said that right back to me. I was like, that's even in my sermon, right? I forgot. That was in my sermon. I already forgot that was in my sermon. She like, no, this is not, not in your power. This is in the, the power of the, the Holy Spirit. It's God's power that we want to rely on. So here's the good news. Verse 29, then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mespah of Gilead. And from Mespah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. Here's the next big idea. Is that God doesn't work because of us, but often in spite of us. Often God works in spite of us. And I'm, I'm convinced here that the Lord raised up and used, he used Jephthah not because he was worried... Not because he thought, man, I, I've got to, I got to use Jephthah or they're going to get my people. It's that because God had a point that God was using the weak things of the world to shame the wise. That God was, God was showing, I'm going to use Jephthah to point people to me. I'm going to use Jephthah to save people. And so in spite of his giftedness, not because of his giftedness, God used him, and that is true of us, that God often moves and work in, works in us to show his power. Buddy spoke of this last week, that, that, that Buddy said, who gets, you know, who gets the glory? He used the illustration about John Piper, looking at John Piper's giftedness. Who, who gets the, the, the glory when someone is extremely gifted? No, it's, it's, it's God uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. Verse 30, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. This is where it gets real weird. He said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aurora to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities and as far as Abel Kerman with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low. And you've become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, 
My father, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now the, the Lord has avenged you on your enemies and on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity and I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed. She and her companions and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he made. She had never known a man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Here's my next big idea, and it's this, that when we bargain and make deals with God because we don't understand who he is. This passage, this, this part of the story is the, is the one that, that kind of blows our mind. We, we read this story and we went, wait, why did he just kill his own daughter? Now, I want you to know there's several interpretations of this passage. And there's that people, people take it several different ways. And I think there's actually a couple different good arguments made. My Hebrew professor... Um, he he's a he's, he 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 visits other places, but he's a long-term professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, and he is, he was um, is a I mean he's the guy on the Book of Judges, ESV commentary on the Book of Judges study Bible. He actually is the one who who edited and, and wrote the ESV commentary on the Book of Judges. His take on this. Is, is different than mine. His take is that he actually did not sacrifice his daughter, that he did not actually kill her, that he made her follow through with this vow and this vow to remain uh, a virgin, and that she would never knew a man. And by never knowing a man, if you, if you know much about the Old Testament, you read the Old Testament, you know that, man, it was about their offspring that they live. And by not having any offspring, because his only daughter would, would not reproduce, then he was as good as dead. She was as good as dead to him. And so that, that's a view. Um, I think that's a well-meaning view. I think that's a, that's a view. But I, I, when I read other scholars and I look, they kind of like argue and... Now, I shouldn't say argue, but like wrestle in the Hebrew. They, they basically say, well, you know, you're looking at tenses and verb tenses and everywhere else this is used. It's not used any differently. And long story short, we think he killed his daughter. And so those are the, those are the two main views. My Hebrew professor said, would he be included in the, the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, how, ha, had he sacrificed his daughter? And my answer to that would be, do you see who else is in there? It's full of broken, sinful men who did crazy, stupid, sinful stuff. And so I look at this story and I think, in fact, he did kill his own daughter. And so then you might ask, well, why would God have him do that? 
I think if you read this story, you'll see God did not have him do that. He didn't have to do that. I don't think he intended to do that. Right? I think his intention was that a servant would greet him, which would have been customary, and he was okay with often a servant. Right? He was okay with, with making a sacrifice. This also shows that, that Jephthah in, in himself, he, was, he, he knew the false religions around him. They influenced him more than his own. Human sacrifice um, would have been normal in some of those other religions mentioned. There would have been, it would have been not unusual for somebody to try to twist the, the hands of their God, to make a bargain with God to sacrifice another human, and guess what? Often, their own daughters. And so we talk about, what, like when we like kind of, um, read back on the Bible and we project our own modern morals and values on it, we've got to realize like the, the, the world around them was doing way worse. I mean, when you, we talk about like dispossessing the land, it's the problem we have with the book of Joshua is that as the people go and take their inherited promised land, that, that they're running people out. You've got to understand, this happened. This was happening. It, it happened at the time. It had happened before. It happened right here on the soil that we're on, and it continues to happen in other countries. I don't know if you've watched the news and know that there's a conflict in Russia and Ukraine. Right? This happened. Same thing. This is, this is something that happened. That child sacrifices, um, sacri sacrificing adults, it, it, it happened. It actually still happens in the world in pagan religions. It still happens. So often what happens in false religions is they, they bargain and make deals with God. And they say, if you do this thing, I'll do this thing. If you'll do this, then I'll do this. And my big idea is that when we bargain and make deals with God, we don't understand who he is. We don't understand how holy and righteous God is. We don't understand how powerful God is. We don't understand how sovereign God is. And we for sure don't understand how good and merciful and gracious and loving God is. I used to, I used to do this. I used to like, in My, tw my, my, my late teens, early 20s, and I, was, I would go through, I, w I was, I was going through a hard time. I was going through quite the trial at the time, one of the hardest trials I'd ever been through. And I would, I would pray to God, and I would say, God, if you will do this for me, I will stop doing these things. I'll stop sowing my wild oats. That's what, what I thought I was doing. I was like, I've got to get this out of my system. I'll just stop doing that. I'll stop partying. And I'll settle down, and I'll become a deacon, serving church. I, I made that I made that bargain and and plea with God. And what it shows is that I didn't at the time I didn't understand who God is. I didn't understand what it meant to to say no. I'm surrendering to you, and I'm going to be obedient to you, no matter how these circumstances play out in my life. 
Like no matter how these circumstances play out, I'm going to live for you and I'm going to trust you that you're sovereign and that you're good. I'm, I'm going I'm to trust. I'm not going to bargain and plead. I mean, Jephthah, this is what we know, that the Spirit of God was on Jephthah, that God was going to use Jephthah to, to push back the king of the Ammonites and, and to free uh, the land uh, in Gilead. He was going to release it. He was going to use them. He didn't have to make this bargain and plead with God. And after he made the bargain and plead with God, this wasn't some sort of covenant with God. God didn't covenant him with this. This is, this is no, this is no um, story of, of, of Isaac being offered up on, on you know, this is the God, the God's not in, in talking to him in this. He's doing this on his own. And so Jephthah doesn't understand. He sees God at, at, through, the, through the eyes of the world around him and their, their understanding of foreign gods. And I'll tell you, that we must be careful of the same thing, that we must not let the world around us tell us who God is. We, we must not let the false, other false religion, other false gods, secularism, that, I mean, that's the, the God of our age, is secularism. We must not let them wipe away who God is. We must let Scripture tell us who God is. We must stop bargaining and making deals with God. We must stop trying to negotiate with God and put our yes on the table and say, yes, God, we will follow you. Yes, Lord, we trust you. Yes, I'm giving my life to you. I'm confessing with my mouth that you are Lord. And that means that you are, you are king, you are, you are the ruler, you are the boss of my life, and what you say, I will do. What you call me to, I will trust that you will lead me through. I'm putting my yes on the table. But what keeps us from that? Is that in our sinful nature, over and over and over in our lives, we try to save ourselves. We try to be the own judge. We try to be the own leader. We want to put forth the sacrifice. We want to put work forth the work. We want to be the hero. We want to save ourselves. But rather, we must look and go, we are unable to save ourselves. We, because of our sinful nature, are unable to be the hero. We are, we are unable to be the sacrifice because we're not perfect or, or holy. We're not a sheep or a lamb without blemish, right? We, we, our, our, our sacrificial life must li be lived in God. We can't literally sacrifice our lives, good news is this, is that Christ was the perfect sacrifice. He's completed this work. He's done this work. The very thing that the judges sought to do, Jesus did. Jesus finished it. He was the human sacrifice. He did take on our punishment. He took on our sin. He took the debt that we owed on him. 
that while we were still sinners, that while we deserve God's wrath, God, because he loved us, he, through his son, offered him up as a sacrifice. And so today, our response is going to be that of taking communion. And communion is this, this confession that Jesus was our sacrifice, is our sacrifice, that his body broken for us, that his blood shed for us. In taking communion, we're saying we can't save ourselves, but we're doing this in remembrance of the one who was sacrificed to save us. As we take communion today, I want to remind you of who ought to take communion. Remind you what communion is and, and what it does. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is now the covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim that the Lord was the one who sacrificed his life to save us. That salvation is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And that we cannot earn our own salvation, but salvation is from the Lord. He then says, whoever therefore eats the bread... And drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood, and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so communion, as we take it, it is, it is for those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ. It's for those who believe that Christ was their sacrifice. Who believe that they cannot save themselves. That you have, have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised raised from the dead. That you're being obedient to Christ. That you've followed him in baptism. That you've followed him. That there's not unrepentant sin in your life. That you examine yourself. And you see, am I in this sin cycle where I have turned and I have forsaken the Lord... And if that's you, if you've forsaken the Lord, I, I call you to repentance today, to cry out in this song and say, Father, I am turning from my sin, I'm turning from my own way, and I'm following you. Examine yourself, make sure that you are right with God and that you follow the Lord before you drink of the cup. Today, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ, I pray that you hear the story about Jephthah and, and you see in, in his lack of character, his lack of of, of being able to truly be a holy and righteous judge that you see Jesus. And if you look and you see who you are in this story, that you realize you're not Jephthah, and you're not Jesus, you're Israel. And that you turn and follow the right leader. You turn and follow Jesus. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth, every bit of it, even in a story like this that 
It just seems so foreign and strange to us that someone would sacrifice their, their child. But Lord, we would look to you, the one who did sacrifice their child. And we see that you saved the world through your son. That you saved the world through Jesus. And so, Father, we are thankful that while we were still sinners, while we were in rebellion against you, while we didn't deserve it, Father, you worked on our behalf. And so, Lord, let us take of the, the cup today. Let us t- t- eat of the bread and drink of the cup in a worthy manner with our eyes and our hearts focused on you today. Father, you are good. We love you and we praise you. Amen. Let's stand and sing a song of response.